This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be reading from verses 15 through 35. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed the week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. We uh, are continuing our series on the book of Genesis. And we're in the middle of the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob is one of the most important and transitional figures in the Bible because it's through Jacob that Israel goes from being a family to becoming a nation. So he's very important. But the really surprising thing is that Jacob is not what we would call a hero. In fact, for most of his story, he's a mess. And yet we see God working in his life over the course of many years. In fact, we really see that this week in this passage that we just read. When we started looking at Jacob's life a few years ago, the first thing we saw was how starved Jacob was for the blessing of his father. His whole story revolves around a deep inner emptiness. He yearns for affirmation. He yearns for blessing. He yearns for something to fill this aching hole in his heart. He tried to get it from his father, but it didn't work. In fact, his life fell apart because it was all based on lies and deception. And even though last week we saw that he had had this amazing encounter with God. He's still looking for something other than God to fill that aching hole in his heart. This may be one of the ways that Jacob is most relatable for us as modern people because this story is all about Jacob looking to heal that ache and fill that hole 
through finding the love of his life. He's looking for a soulmate. He's looking for that one true love. He thinks, that's what's going to fix me. That's what's going to heal this ache in my heart if I can just find the love of my life. Many of us today, we feel the exact same way. If I could just find the love of my life, then I'll be okay. That would heal the ache. That would fill the hole. It's one of the most powerful impulses in our lives. And this passage actually has a lot to show us about that. And we can learn about it by seeing three things this morning. We see here the ache for love, uh, the disillusionment of love, and lastly, the fulfillment of love. The ache, the disillusionment, and the fulfillment of love. So first, we see here the ache for love. Now let's remind ourselves of the backstory. Genesis is the story of how God chose one man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bring blessing and healing to the world. One of your seed, one of your descendants is going to be the Messiah who's going to conquer all sin and evil and death and suffering for all time. So Genesis keeps following this family line, going through each generation and asking the question, who's going to be the one to carry forward this promise? Who's going to be the child of blessing, the chosen one who will carry forward this messianic seed? Now, Jacob was the one in this generation. He was the one God chose, but his father Isaac wanted to give it to his older brother Esau. Esau was the firstborn. Esau was his father's favorite. Esau got all his father's love and attention and approval and admiration, while Jacob got none, and it poisoned him. He grew up with this incredible emptiness inside of him. So he disguised himself as his brother Esau, and he went into his old blind father and deceived him by pretending to be Esau so that his father would give him the blessing of the firstborn. But of course, he's found out, and his whole life falls apart as a result. His brother wants to kill him. He's alienated from his whole family, and he has to run for his life to the family home of his mother, Rebecca, and to her brother, Laban. And when he gets there, one of the first things that happens is he meets Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he falls head over heels for her. So he starts working for his uncle Laban, and that's where this story begins. Laban asks Jacob, because you are my kinsman or my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, just to be clear, this is a negotiation. Laban wants to haggle with Jacob, but Jacob doesn't want money. He wants Rachel. So verse 18 tells us Jacob loved Rachel. But understand, this is no ordinary love. When you're reading the Bible, it's important to understand the genre of what you're reading because that's going to help you to know how to understand what it's actually teaching you. So for instance, some parts of the Bible are just straight up prose, like the letters of Paul. Paul will just tell you things straight out, like you're justified by grace through faith. But Genesis is what's called Hebrew narrative. And like much other narrative, it teaches us truth, but not so much by telling us things, as by showing us things. In fact, Hebrew narrative is famous for being very sparse. It doesn't give you a lot of detail. That means that the detail it does give you is incredibly important. So verse 18 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel, but the rest of this story shows us how much he loved her by giving us all kinds of other little details to fill out the picture. So how did Jacob love Rachel? Well, let's notice some of the details. In those days, in that culture, potential suitors would pay a price to a family in exchange for the hand of their daughter in marriage. It was called a bride price. 
Uh, in fact, many cultures today still practice this custom. Uh, back then, a typical amount for a bride price would have been between 30 or 40 shekels. So Laban says, name a price, and Jacob makes an offer. But understand something, Jacob is not negotiating here. <laughs> He's rolling over. He says, I'll serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, in those days, the average wage for a hired worker was about one and a half shekels a month. So at 12 months a year for seven years, Jacob is offering Laban over 120 shekels for the hand of his daughter. This was an extravagant amount of money. It, Jacob doesn't just love Rachel. He's consumed with Rachel. And that really comes out when we look at the other details. For instance, in verses 16 through 18, it tells us that Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. So what do we have here? There's two daughters. The firstborn was Leah, and Rachel was the younger. And even though translators are never really sure exactly what it means when it says that Leah's eyes were weak, the point is pretty obvious. Rachel was the beautiful one, and Leah was the plain, ordinary one. She was probably even the unattractive one. And Jacob is consumed with Rachel. In fact, verse 20 tells us, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. In other words, seven years went by like nothing because he loved her so much. But it's the last little detail that really shows us just how consumed Jacob really is. Because after the seven years are up, in verse 21, he says to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, uh, one of the Hebrew scholars that I was studying this week says that for centuries, uh, rabbis have been trying to <laughs> maneuver their way around this language because it's just so explicit. It's, it's over-the-top language. Jacob is literally saying, my time is up, give me my wife, I want to have sex with her. Now, what is all of this showing us? We, we're seeing that Jacob has a hole in his heart, and this is how he's trying to fill it. He tried to get the love he needed from his father, but his father loved Esau more. And Jacob was poisoned by the favoritism of his father. And when he tried to steal his father's love, his life blew up. So here he is, he's in exile, he's running for his life. His life is a disaster, and what's he doing? He's got this deep inner emptiness, and so far, nothing has been able to fill it. But he sees Rachel, and he says, this is going to fill the hole in my heart. This is going to heal the ache in my heart. And don't you know that we all do that? I mean, let me just be personal with you for a moment. Uh, many of you know this about me. Many of you may not. But I was a drug addict and an alcoholic for many years. And when I finally went to rehab, I realized something. All those years that I was drinking and using, I never really wanted to admit it to myself. But one of the big reasons was because I was just so phenomenally lonely. And I wanted someone in my life that would love me. And I couldn't find it. So I drank, I used, I tried to fill the hole. And when I finally got to rehab, I realized that taking drugs and alcohol out of my life did not create a hole. It simply revealed the hole that had always been there. And look, you know, I know that drugs and alcohol, you know, it's an extreme example. And it's easy to dismiss people like that as emotionally needy. It's easy to dismiss Jacob as emotionally needy. You know, what a loser. 
And yet I want to suggest that each one of us is far more susceptible to this than we want to admit. Um, you know, there was an article in the New York Times last year about marriage. It's called, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. The author, uh, throughout the course of the article, he draws a contrast between ancient and modern views of marriage. And he says that it used to be that people got married for uh, utilitarian reasons. You had arranged marriages, marriages that would advance the financial status of the families, uh, or they would advance the social status of the families. In contrast, he says, our modern view of marriage is not based on utility as much as it's based on feeling. And here's how he defines that. He says, what matters in the marriage of feeling is that two people are drawn to each other by an overwhelming instinct, and they know in their hearts that it is right. The founding romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based for the last 250 years is this, that a perfect being exists who can meet all of our needs and satisfy our every yearning. How many movies or songs or books are about this? Do you realize how powerful this idea is in our culture and therefore how deeply you're affected by it? I mean, don't you realize that you are at least highly susceptible to this, if not already captive to it? I mean, we all do this. Every single one of us is looking for something to be our Rachel, something that's going to fill the hole, something that's going to heal that ache in your heart, even if just for a moment. I mean, why has the hookup culture exploded over the past several years? This is why we all have an ache for love. And that's the first thing we see here. But secondly, we see also the disillusionment of love. Because what happens next in this story? We've already been set up for quite a dramatic resolution, have we not? In fact, if this were a modern Hollywood romance, here's how it would go. Jacob is in exile, and he travels hundreds of miles, and he finally arrives in this little village. He's dusty, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's been on the run for his life. But the next thing he knows, he sees Rachel. And all of a sudden, his head is spinning. Fireworks are going off in his heart. I mean, somewhere, Celine Dion starts singing. Um, but of course, you know, like every good romance, there's no easy path. So Jacob's working for Laban. There's trial, there's trouble, and we don't know if it's going to work out, but you're just rooting for these two young lovers. And finally, at the very end, against all odds, the wedding comes, and they finally end up in each other's arms. And then we're walking out of the theater you know, with Celine Dion's voice still ringing in our ears, and we're thinking, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. But Genesis is not a Hollywood romance, which means that Genesis is far more realistic about the way the human heart really works. Because what does happen in this story? Jacob works for seven years, and at the end, here comes the big night. There's a wedding, there's a feast, there's a party with lots of food, lots of alcohol. And finally, after all the hoopla, Jacob goes to his tent to wait for Rachel. He thinks, this is the big night. Now, understand something. He's probably had a lot to drink, so his senses are dulled. And it's dark because they didn't have any electricity back then. And on top of all that, the bride would have been wearing a veil. So Jacob thinks, this is the moment. This is it. Finally, the love my heart has been aching for all my life. But then one of the most crushing verses in the whole Bible, verse 25 says, but in the morning, behold, <laughs> it was Leah. Instead of Rachel, Laban sent Leah into the tent to trick Jacob. 
And at first, Jacob is furious. He goes to Laban and in verse 25, he says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And you know what? Jacob has a case. I mean, he has been tricked. He's been deceived. But as soon as Laban answers, all of Jacob's fury just fades away. Why? In verse 26, Laban says to Jacob, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And here's why Jacob was cut to the quick. Laban does not say, you know, Jacob, around here, we don't give the younger before the older. That's not what he says. He says, Jacob, around here, we don't give the younger before the firstborn. And as soon as Jacob hears that, he knows. This is poetic justice. Because Jacob went to his father in the darkness of his father's blindness and pretended to be his brother in order to trick his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. But now he knows. Laban sent Leah to him in the darkness of the night, (laughs) pretending to be her sister in order to trick Jacob into giving his love to the firstborn. And once again, everything he thought was going to fill that hole, everything he thought was going to heal that ache, at the very moment he wraps his arms around it, literally, it just fades away. And he's left once again with, with that emptiness that he's been working all his life to fill. In fact, here's how one of the greatest commentators on Genesis, a man named Derek Kidner, here's what he wrote about this experience. He says, the words, behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of anticlimax. And this experience uh, is a miniature of humanity's disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. Every time we think we found the thing that's going to fill the hole and heal the ache, it never does. And the really tragic thing here is Jacob is not the only one who's crushed by this. Imagine what this was like for Leah. Remember back when we got introduced to these two sisters? Remember what it said? Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. So just like Jacob, always growing up in the shadow of his brother Esau, poisoned by the favoritism of his father, Leah has grown up always in the shadow of her beautiful sister Rachel. Her heart has been just as poisoned by the same favoritism. And just like Jacob with his father, Leah, at the very moment that she thought that she was finally getting the love she'd been longing for her whole life, at that very moment, she would have known that it wasn't meant for her. You see, the disillusionment doesn't just poison Jacob. It poisons Leah too. And boy, that really comes out at the end of this passage. It said that Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. She knows that Rachel is the one that Jacob really wants, not her. In fact, verse uh, 31, that is, tells us that she was hated. The poison has gone into her soul too. So what does she do? Well, she starts having children. But look at what she names them. Every name that she chooses is a way of talking about the emptiness of her own heart and the way she's trying to go about filling trying to fill that hole in her heart by being the perfect wife and getting the love of her husband. So the firstborn uh, that she has, she names Reuben, which means see a son, because she thinks the Lord has seen my sorrow. Maybe now my husband will see me. Uh, The second she names Simeon, which comes from the word to hear. She thinks the Lord has heard that I am hated. Maybe now Jacob will love me. The third child she has, she names Levi, which sounds like the word for attached. She thinks, maybe now my husband will be attached to me. I'm having all these sons. 
You see, Leah's doing the same thing that Jacob did. If I could just get the love in my heart, if I could just get the love my heart has been looking for, that will fill the hole, that will heal the ache, and it never does. She keeps having children, but none of it works. What does all of this teach us? Well, it teaches us a couple of things. And the first is this. A lot of times, you know, people read the Bible and they see things like polygamy and slavery and primogeniture, which is where the firstborn is favored over the other children. People see these things in the Bible and they think, well, the Bible promotes those things. See, it's right there. But remember what we saw just a little bit ago. Hebrew narrative works more by showing than by telling us. When people say the Bible never says that polygamy is wrong, that's because they don't know how to read Hebrew narrative. So one of the greatest experts on Hebrew narrative is a man named Robert Alter. Uh, He actually has a couple of books on this, but one of the things he's always pointing out is how the Bible, and especially Genesis, is constantly overturning all of the social norms of the ancient world and showing us how every single time these things turn up in the story, things like polygamy, it it always ruins people's lives. It's always a disaster. You know, we think that we're so enlightened and so progressive with regards to women's rights, but when we really learn to read the Bible, we find out that it was already there thousands of years before we were. We think how awful that a woman's life would be determined by her looks or by her ability to have children, and yet we still do that to women in our society. But this passage is pressing us to see just how disastrous this is and just how much it poisons the lives of everyone involved. But listen, there's something even more important here that we need to know, and it's this. If you make anything other than God your Rachel, then you will end up disillusioned. You will always end up empty. You will always end up crushed. And not only that, your disillusionment will crush the people around you. Look at Jacob and his family. He spent his whole life trying to find something to fill that hole, and it absolutely poisons the lives of the people around him. It poisons Leah, it poisons Rachel, and as we're going to see in a few weeks, it it poisons his children as well. If you look to anyone other than God to fill the hole, to heal the ache, to fix you, friends, your expectations will crush that person, and their inevitable failure to live up to your expectations will crush you. What can be done? We've seen the ache for love. We've seen the disillusionment of love. Lastly, we need to see the fulfillment of love. One of the things that's really interesting about Leah and all of these children that she's having is that on the one hand, uh, the thing that's going to fill the hole for her, she thinks, is having children and getting the love of her husband. That's her, Rachel. But on the other hand, she keeps making reference to the Lord as she's doing this. You can see that there's a struggle in her heart, almost as if she's saying, God, I I know that it's you and you alone. You're the only one who can really fill this void and heal the ache in my heart, but I'm struggling because I'm looking to all these other things to do it. I'm looking to Jacob. I'm looking to my children. I'm struggling here. But finally, with the fourth child, she has a breakthrough. Did you notice it? The fourth child is Judah, which means praise the Lord. Instead of saying, this time maybe my husband will see me, or this time maybe my husband will love me, or this time maybe my husband will be attached to me. No, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Instead of looking to Jacob and her children to fill the hole in her heart, she looks to God. How can she do that? It's because she remembered the promise. 
It's the promise that runs through the entire book of Genesis. The promise of God that says, one day I'm going to send a child, a son, a descendant, who's going to crush all evil, all sin, all suffering, and all death for all time. He's going to crush all of the suffering, all of the disillusionment, all of the emptiness. He's going to crush it all. Because do you know who Judah was, this fourth son of Leah? He's the one who carries forth the seed. He's the one from whom eventually Jesus Christ is born. Do you know what that means? All through scripture, one of the ways that God refers to himself is as the bridegroom. He's the true love of our life. He's the only one who can fill the hole. He's the only one who can heal the ache. When Leah gives birth to Judah and says, this time I will praise the Lord, she's experiencing a foretaste of the only love that can fill her heart and heal the ache. Because when Jesus comes to earth, he said, I'm the true bridegroom. That means that everything we're looking for in romantic love Everything we're looking for in the hope of family, everything we're looking for when we put ourselves in the arms of another, all of that is ultimately found only in Jesus Christ. None of those things are intended to fill that gaping hole in your heart. They are there to point you to the only one who can, Jesus. And Leah, amazingly enough, Leah shows us how he did it. Because who is Leah? She's the rejected one. She's the forgotten one. She's the overlooked one. One of the greatest preachers of our past generation is a man named Tim Keller. He uh, pastors a church in New York City. I've learned more about this passage from him than from anyone else. And many years ago, he preached a very famous sermon about Leah, a sermon on this passage, and he called it, The Girl Nobody Wanted. (laughs) Because that's who Leah is. Don't you see? God made Leah the mother of Jesus. That's how he brings his love and redemption into the world. It's not through the beautiful one. It's not through the one that everyone wants. It's not through the glamorous one. It's through the weak one. It's through the forgotten one because that's who Jesus was too. And that's how Jesus saved us. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, the ultimate beautiful one, he became weak. He became rejected. He became forgotten and despised and cast aside. On the cross, Jesus became like Leah so that he could make you his Rachel. He's the one who fills the hole in your heart. He's the one, the only one who can heal the ache. He's the one who finally crushes all of the emptiness and all the disillusionment. But the only way that Jesus could do it was to be crushed himself. That means that the only way that you can receive his love, the only way you can ever really... um, find something or someone to fill your heart and heal the ache, the only way you can receive the love of Jesus is for you to become weak, for you to become like Leah too. Friends, if you're someone who thinks that, you know, Christianity is just for emotionally needy people, it's only for losers, for emotionally handicapped people, and it's a crutch, friends, if that's you, then the gospel can't come into your life. You're too good for it. You're too proud for it. You have to admit that you actually need this love and that Jesus had to die on the cross for you in order for his love to come into your life. And if you do, if you do that, let me leave you with one final thought of application. This does not mean that we shouldn't look for a spouse or love a spouse. This does not mean that we shouldn't have children or love our children. On the contrary, remember what we saw. If you make anyone other than God your Rachel, 
then your expectations will crush that person and their inevitable failure to live up to your expectations will crush you. If you need that person to fill the hole and heal your ache, that need of yours will destroy the both of you. But if you set your heart on Jesus and you receive your ultimate love from him, all of a sudden now you're really free to love your spouse and your children without crushing them because you're no longer demanding that they be something that they can never be and do something they can never do. Far from making you less loving toward other people, the gospel actually makes you free, more able to truly love them and truly to serve them. Do you know the love of Jesus that frees you to do this? You're his Rachel. Make him yours. Let's pray.